Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. I want to talk this morning about Daniel on resurrection. Uh, the single greatest event in the history of the human race took place on the first Sunday after Pentecost, Passover in the year AD 30. That was the resurrection of Yeshua. They put him on the cross, they put him to death, they stuck him in the grave, and he overcame the grave. He defeated death. And the person who defeated death, Yeshua, promised life to all those who will trust in Him. Now, when we talk about resurrection, Christ rose from the grave to demonstrate His victory over the grave. But He also promised life to all of us and promised resurrection. So, there's a lot of today about when was that resurrection that he promised us going to happen? Futurists say the resurrection of believers will happen at a future time, sometime off in the future. We don't know when it is, but we as preterists say that the resurrection happened in the past. Well, most importantly, what does the Bible say? Well, in our time this morning, we want to look at Daniel chapter 12 and see what Daniel tells us about resurrection and about the timing of the resurrection. So let's look at verse 1 here. It says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. He starts off now at that time. Now since we started at verse, uh, chapter 12, we don't have a clue what time he's talking about, so we have to back up a little bit and try to get some context here. So let's go back to 1014. He says, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Here Daniel is being given a vision of what will happen to his, your people. Now who are, who are Daniel's people? Yeah. Okay, that's who they're not. He's not talking to 20th century, 21st century American Christians. Daniel's people were the Israelites. This is going to happen to your people, and it's going to happen in the latter days. Well, the latter days of what? Well, he's talking to his people. It's the latter days of his people. This vision is of the future. It's of the last days of Israel. Israel is to come to an end. Daniel 11 verse 40 says, at that time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Now he says, at the end time, this is going to happen. All right, so at the end time of chapter 12 is the latter days of 1014, and it's the end time of 1140. So Daniel 12 is talking about the end times, which we know is referring to the end of the Old Covenant dispensation. The period of law. The Mosaic dispensation. He says, at that time, Michael the Great Prince. Now, who is this Great Prince Michael who stands guard over Daniel's people? Well, the name Michael is from the Hebrew Mikael, and it means one who is like God. We see Michael three times in the Tanakh. He's in 10, Daniel 10.13. He says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia 
was withstanding me 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now the context here demands that this prince be considered a supernatural being rather than some kind of royal human figure. The literature from Qumran also uses the title prince as a reference to chief angels. Jude calls Michael the archangel, which means chief of the angels. And I believe this prince of the kingdom of Persia is a deity. He is given custody of Persia. We've talked about this uh, when we talked about the divine council. All right, The Lord divided up the nations in Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, 70 nations. He took each nation and put a deity, a god, over them. Different gods, not himself. Because these people wouldn't listen to him. He says, I'm done with you people. I've had all I can take. Here, take these other gods. They'll rule over you. Then, in chapter 12 of Genesis, he calls Abraham and he starts all over with a new people, the Israelites, who he calls to himself. So God, all through the Bible, is called the God of Israel. That's Yahweh. These other gods are ruling the other nations. And here we see a God over Persia. In the book Sirach, which is part of what's considered the Apocrypha, it says, He appointed a ruler for every nation, but Israel is the Lord's own portion. All right? So all these other nations had gods over them. He was the God of Israel. And that's basically what Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 teach. We see this prince of Persia battling with Michael, who is one of the chief princes. In 1021 it says, However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Again, we see Michael is called a prince. The only other use of Michael in the Tanakh is found in Daniel chapter 12 in our text. And here we see that Michael is a great prince who stands guard over Daniel's people. So Michael is the patron angel of Israel. He is depicted as warring on behalf and is called Israel's protector. This is one of Yahweh's council members. This is a high-ranking celestial being. The, the, the celestial beings have a rank, and they're different in rank. Angels, we think of you know, God and His angels. Angels are the lowest rank. All right. Then we have different levels of angels. And here is Michael. He's an archangel. So in Daniel 10, we see two gods battling over Israel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia and Michael the prince. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see Michael again battling a prince Who's the prince he's fighting now? Well, in, in Revelation 12, 7, it says, There was war in heaven. In heaven this is happening. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon, and his angels waged war. Now, what nation is Satan the prince over? What nation is Israel in subjection to in the New Testament? Rome. Okay, they have been under different nations. Now they are under Rome, and Satan is the prince behind Rome. He is the God who is over Rome, the spiritual power behind the beast. We see in Daniel that Persia and Greece also had a prince or a watcher behind them in Daniel 10. Would it make sense that the watcher, would, a chief angel, would also be over Rome? 
And that's exactly what the book of Revelation presents. The beast represents Rome, and the dragon that gives the beast the power is Satan. Now, there are some who believe that Michael is the pre-incarnate Christ. I used to hold that view. I since realized how foolish that was and moved on from that view. All right. But I want you to notice the word here, princes, in Daniel 10, 13. Princes here is plural. So how can there be more than one chief prince if Michael is Christ himself? Who would the other chief princes be? Well, some try to argue that the plural here, princes, is a reference to the Trinity. But that's not a good argument here at all, okay? Now, in Jewish tradition, Michael is the leader of the archangels who dwells in the presence of God, according to the Ascension of Isaiah 3.16. In this capacity, he functions in a number of roles. He's the patron angel of Israel. He's fighting for Israel against these other gods that are trying to rule over it. He's an intercessor for Israel before God. And the very fact that Michael is described as an archangel indicates this different rank or different orders of angels. In other apocryphal books, the number of archangels is given as seven. For example, Enoch 20 talks about there being seven archangels. He names them. Tobit 12 also does the same thing. Talks these seven archangels, these high-ranking angels. All right, so Daniel 12 goes on to call Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. We know that the sons of your people is a reference to the Hebrew people. It's a reference to Israelites. He's the great prince who stands guard over the Israelites. He says, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Does that sound familiar? Now remember, this is to happen at that time. Okay, at the time of the end of Israel, at the time of the end of the Old Covenant, at that time, the Jewish age is ending. So Daniel's predicting a time of great trouble in Israel at the end of Israel's age. Daniel tells us that during this time of great distress, some of the people will be rescued. Well, Jeremiah tells us the same thing in Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7. He says, now these are the words which Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says Yahweh, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Well, what would you, how do you respond to that? Can a man give birth? No, not at all. Well, then here's the question the Lord asks. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? In other words, why do they look like they're in such pain? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great, and there is none like it. We see the same theme through many of the writers. There's no day like this day. He is talking about the great tribulation. And it's a time of Jacob's distress, and he will be saved from it. You know, a lot of people could straighten out their tribulation theology if they just understood the tribulation is about Jacob's distress. It's referring to Israel. It's a time of trouble for Israel, not the world. There's none like it, he says. Then he says the same time period of great distress is a time in which some will be saved. Yeshua also talked about this time in Matthew 24. Yeshua answering the disciples' questions about the destruction of Jerusalem. They wanted to know when it would be destroyed. 
What, what are the signs that would precede the end of the age and precede your parousia? And in Matthew 24, 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. He's talking to a Jewish audience, and he tells them then there will be great tribulation. Then is referring, the context is verses 15 through 20, when you see the abomination of desolation which Luke tells us is Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So when you see that, when you see this happen, then there's going to be a great tribulation. Now this happened in AD 67, where Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, laid siege to Jerusalem. The great tribulation, people, is not an event in our future. It was then. It was during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in the first century. This is made abundantly clear in the parallel text in Luke's gospel. Look what Luke says in Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. You get that? Hey, look, we got, we're surrounded by armies. They're all over the place. Guess what happens next? We're going to get smashed. All right? Our desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. You know, people talk about the tribulation being worldwide. What good is it to go to mountains if the tribulation's worldwide? What's the purpose of that? Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Now, this would be hard to grasp, people. Jerusalem was a fortress. It's surrounded by an army. When there's an army coming, you want to be in the fortress, not outside the fortress. So he says, you got to leave, and they're like, nah, we'll stay in the fortress. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because that would be your natural inclination. Armies are coming, run to the fort. He says, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. So Luke tells us here that all things that are written will be fulfilled. And what he means by that, all that has been written is he's talking about prophecy. All that has been prophesied about this time is going to be fulfilled when Jerusalem is destroyed. Daniel tells us this very same thing in Daniel chapter 9. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Again, your people, Daniel, Israelites. And the holy city, what city do you think that is? Jerusalem. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy. So Daniel was told that 70 weeks would be determined and these things were going to happen in that time and one of them was sealing up vision and prophecy. Now listen, you know it's hard to get two people to agree on anything when it comes to the Scripture. But you look up almost any Hebrew commentary and they will tell you that this, they all say this means the same thing. It means to end and to bring to a completion and fulfillment of all prophecy. So no more prophecy is given and the prophecy that has been given is fulfilled. Almost all of them are in agreement on this, which is incredible. Daniel's prophecy then tells of a time when all prophecy would cease to be given and what had been given would be fulfilled. When would that be? Well, Daniel's vision begins with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So the fall of Jerusalem was far more than the fall of a city. It was the end of an age. It was the end of the Old Covenant age. This is why Yeshua said it would be a great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until that time, no, nor ever shall be. 
For this reason, I ask, how could it be possible for there to be a future destruction of Jerusalem equal or greater to that which happened in AD 70? Yeshua said, nothing in time would ever equal what happened in AD 70. Nothing. Because it was covenantal. It was the end of an age. Now, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but the tribulation is past. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. You missed it. I hope you're not too disappointed. Because there's a lot of people looking forward to this tribulation with excitement. And it's really sad. You know, I don't get it. I don't think they understand what the tribulation is. Um, if you want to understand how great this tribulation was, you just need to read some of Josephus' literature. You know, when he talks about what happened during that time. It's incredible. All right, let's go back to Matthew and notice what he says in the next verse. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, this is the same thing we saw in Daniel 12.1. And at that time, your people, everyone found written in the book, will be rescued. So Daniel, Jeremiah, Yeshua all talk about this same time period of great tribulation when Yahweh will save His people. Yeshua tells us exactly when this time was to be. In verse 34 of Matthew 24, 34, he says, Truly I say to you, who do you think the you is here? It's the people he's talking to, right? I say to you, I'm talking to you, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. He's talking to his disciples. All the things he has mentioned so far in this chapter, he said, would come to pass in their generation. This includes the gospel being preached into all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming Son of Man. This verse, Matthew 24, 34, bothers people. Because it'll ruin your theology in a minute. Let me share with you one of my favorite teachers and what he has to say on this, okay? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Got that? Now, when you read that, you, I don't even think you, you didn't have even a hurdle there, did you? You didn't have a bump in the road. It wasn't even a speed bump. You understood exactly what that meant. So it means that whatever generation sees these things happening will Come on, John. see Christ come. What else could it mean? What else could it mean? Okay? I mean, he just said, this is so obvious, people. He's stuttering and stammering over. What else could it mean than the... Did you catch what he said? That's John MacArthur. He said, when the people see... When the people see these things happening, the signs... In other words, what he's saying is, Christ, this generation doesn't mean the one he's talking to. It means some other generation. The generation that sees the signs, that's the generation. Now listen, Yeshua was a fairly intelligent individual, okay? And I think he understood language pretty well. He could have said, that generation, and used the far demonstrative. He could have said, a generation, some generation. But he uses the near demonstrative and he says, this generation, the one I'm speaking to, the one you're living in. And he says, I'm I say to you, you people sitting right here listening to me, this generation, the one we live in, 
will not pass away to all these things. You can't twist this and distort it and make it say these. This not, generation means contemporaries every time it's used in the New Testament. But when guys get to this verse, because it dis disrupts their theology, they change the whole meaning. This troubles the futurists because they don't know how to deal with it. So Daniel is talking about a time that the generation that Yeshua lived in would see all these things fulfilled. That generation was going to see it. All of it. First century generation. He says, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Your people, again, is Daniel's people. They're Israelites. At the time of the great tribulation, all the elect Israelites would be saved. They would be rescued. Now notice what Yeshua told His disciples. He said, therefore when you see, this is Matthew 24, 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel, so He's talking about what Daniel talked about, Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Who's ever on the housetop must not go down to get things out of the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. In other words, get out of there when you see this. Run! Because Jerusalem's going down. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because they got to flee and it's kind of hard. You're carrying your baby and you're running. And people read these verses, oh, don't get pregnant now because the tribulation's almost here. No, people, you missed it. A couple thousand years. But pray that your flight will not be in winter. It's a lot harder to run when it's in winter, okay? You've got to take more clothes, all this other stuff. Or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation which has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. When they saw these things, they were to get out. Listen, it's a historical fact that Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, for some unknown reason, he had attacked Jerusalem. The army surrounded him. All right? They're fighting Jerusalem. They got him under siege. All of a sudden, the Roman army ceased and they left. They just took off. And they're inside thinking, what's going on here? What's going on? Well, you know what happened then? Every believer remembered the words of the Lord, get out of here, and they got out. And the many, many people fled. They ran to Pella. They left Jerusalem. But then the Romans came back and then destroyed the place. So he says, listen, get out of there. Josephus, who was an eyewitness, he was a Roman. He was not a believer. I mean, he was a Jew, but he, was, he defected to Rome, became a Roman writer. He was documenting all this stuff. He chronicles the fact that admittedly, he says, in his inability to account for the cessation of the fighting at this time after the siege had begun. In other words, why would they leave and just then come back later? We can account for it because Yahweh was giving his people, believing Israelites, a chance to escape the siege, and the disciples took it. And just as Daniel 12:1 had said, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Daniel said it, Jeremiah said it, Yeshua said it, and it happened exactly as was predicted. Now notice the next verse in Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting content. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now remember that this is in the context of verse 1, the time of the great tribulation. 
in the end time or the last days of Israel, which happened to be AD 70. It was AD 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, broke in, tore the thing down, burned the place down. So this resurrection happens after the time of Jerusalem's destruction, not at the end of time, as most believers think. Most Christians think the resurrection is yet a future event. But notice what Daniel says next in verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So after the resurrection, we see people who are turning other people to righteousness. How could this be if the resurrection was at the end of time? There wouldn't be anything left. There wouldn't be anybody there to do anything. Now notice what Daniel says here. I want you to catch this language. It's really important. We read over this. Here's what's going to happen. He, he's describing believers here. They're going to shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse. That's talking about the stars in the heavens. They're going to be like the stars. He is talking here about believers, and he says they're going to be like stars. This is astral language to speak of believers. But if you understand, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, when they talk about stars, what are they normally talking about? They're normally talking about other gods. All right, The gods are called stars. Let me show you that. Job 38.7 When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here, morning stars, sons of God, these are part of Yahweh's celestial family. They are other gods, other celestial beings. And when the Lord created, they sang together and they shouted for joy. So they're called stars. Daniel is saying that believers in the resurrection will be like the sons of God. Isn't that what the New Testament teaches? We'll be His children. We'll be His sons. We'll be like stars. Let me show you a promise that Yahweh gave to Abram a long, long time ago that contains, carries this in it. Look at Genesis 15.5. And He took him outside, Abram, and He said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And He said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, so shall your descendants be. Now, the complete Jewish Bible puts it this way. Your descendants will be that many. Is that what he means? Does this refer only to quantitative? You'll be as numerous as the stars. Or is it qualitative? You'll be like stars. Well, I think it's both. This is theosis. This is deification. In other words, man someday are going to be like the stars. And we get to Paul in the New Testament, he said, you'll rule over angels. Because we are going to be stars. We are going to be in that capacity. We are going to be sons of God. It's cool language, people. It really talks about what the Lord does to the believers and bringing them into His family. This was... These gods were part of Yahweh's family before they fell. And now He brings man into that position and we share that inner circle, so to speak. 
So what we have in Daniel 12.3 is astralization language. This text reads that the, the resurrection in astral terms, in the resurrection, they're going to shine like the stars of heaven. And in Daniel 12, we see this happening after the resurrection. So when does the resurrection take place? Verse 13, he says, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter your rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, according to this verse, the resurrection takes place at the end of the age. And again, this is the Jewish age. There's only two ages talked about in the Bible. This age, not, the, not this age, but the Bible calls it this age, and it calls it the age to come. This age is Old Covenant age. The age to come is the age we live in now. And listen, if you don't understand the difference, you're going to really be confused reading your Bible. And so many people read this age in the Bible and they think, yes, we're in this age. No, you're not in that age. That was 2,000 years ago. That age ended. You're in the age to come. The new covenant age that we live in has no last days, has no end time. So the end of the age must refer to the end of the old covenant. There's no newer covenant than the new covenant. The new covenant is eternal. Now notice what Yeshua says in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yeshua here quotes Daniel 12.3. So all this stuff, the great tribulation, the resurrection, the righteous shining forth as the sun, all happens at the end of the Jewish age. Both Daniel 12 and Matthew 13 are speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. What we saw, let me back up a slide here. There's going to be weeping and wailing of teeth. He's not talking about hell here. I believe that's a fabrication mostly brought into being by the Catholic Church. All right? This is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This is talking about the torment that happens when an army comes in and destroys your city, slaughters your people, burns the place down. But then, when that happens, the righteous will shine forth as the sun. Now, since we know that the resurrection is past, we have to understand that the resurrection is spiritual, not physical. The resurrection of the dead that took place at the end of the Old Covenant age was not a biological resurrection of dead, decaying bodies. And that's what most people think. The resurrection they look forward to, your, your relative's in the grave and he's going to materialize out of the casket and give it a new body and so shall he ever be with the Lord. What, when the Bible talks about resurrection, what it's talking about is see, all, all believers prior to Christ who died went to Sheol. All right? A waiting place of the dead. They're in Sheol. They're waiting for Christ. And what happens at the resurrection? He took Sheol, those believing, and He brought them into the very presence of God. Now they are alive because they're in God's presence. We can see from teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus several things about the resurrection beliefs of the early Christians. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. That's not a good thing, in case you were wondering, okay? You don't want that. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth. How do they go astray from the truth? Saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Hey, that's what I say. 
So am I spreading gangrene? We'll talk about that in a minute here. The early Christians, according to this, must have believed that the resurrection would be spiritual in nature and therefore not subject to confirmation. You know, you don't run over to your, re your relative's grave and, oh, look at the graves tore up and they're gone. Ah, we know the resurrection happened, right? There wasn't any physical evidence. If the early Christians had believed that the resurrection would involve physical bodies coming out of the graves as taught today, how many of Philatus, they couldn't have convinced anybody that it happened because there was no physical evidence of it. And another thing these early Christians must have believed, they must have believed that life on earth would go on with no material change after the resurrection. They didn't believe that there was going to be a reservated, reser, <laughs> renovated planet all right. as a consequence of resurrection. They didn't believe that because if they were believing that the resurrection was past then they just thought things are going on like they normally are, he'd get them to believe it. They must have thought it was going to be spiritual. Otherwise, this teaching would have been impossible. No one would have paid any attention to them. No, look around. The graves are still there. You know, everything's just like it was. It couldn't have happened. Listen, the reason that they're teaching that the resurrection has already happened was overthrowing the faith of some is that it postulated the consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the earthly temple in Jerusalem still stood. The temple was still standing. And as we're looking at Daniel, you saw that had to be destroyed before the resurrection could take place. What they were teaching was a mixture of law and grace. And this destroyed the faith of some by making the works of the law part of the new covenant. Temple's still standing, but we're in the new covenant. No, it didn't work that way. The resurrection didn't take place until that was destroyed. Look at Daniel 12, 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Daniel's to seal up the book until when? The end of time. That is a terrible translation. It's a terrible translation. That's where people get these crazy ideas. They read bad translations, and they say, time is going to end. Young's literal translation translates this, the time of the end. And guess what? So does the King James Version. Even the New International Version gets this right. We know this should not be translated end of time. If we look at verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen, which was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it should be for a time, times and a half time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. All what events? The great tribulation in verse 1, the resurrection in verse 2, many being turned to righteousness, verse 3, the shattering of the power of the holy people. So all these events will be completed when the power of the holy people shattered. So when does that happen? At the end of time? As verse 4 says, no. The holy people are Israelites. They were shattered in A.D. 70 by the Roman army. It was during the Great Tribulation. The temple, the city was destroyed. Forever ending the Old Covenant. We've got to understand that. Much more than destruction of a city. The Old Covenant ended. The Jews have never offered a sacrifice since. That was the end of that Old Covenant. It's done. Christ is the final sacrifice. Now, since the tribu tribulation did not happen at the end of time, but at the end of the Old Covenant, we know that the New American here, end of time, in Daniel 4 is wrong. 
But let me just say here that the Bible does not speak of the end of time, unless you got a bad translation. The expressions the end time or time of the end is found in Scripture, but nowhere in the Bible can we find the expression the end of time. The expression the end of time or the time of the end speaks of the end of an age, but the end of an age is not the end of time. Scripture doesn't indicate that God has any plan to destroy this created world that we live in. All right, let's go back to verse 4. He says, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Daniel's told to conceal the words, seal up the book. These things were not going to be understood until the time of the end. When the end arrived, Yeshua referring to Daniel's words said this, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And Mark adds, let the reader understand. This is designed to draw attention to the readers of Daniel to the passage's true meaning. In other words, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem. And again, you can figure that out, right? We've got armies surrounding the whole city. We're in trouble. It's the sign of the coming of the end of the age. Daniel 12, 9, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. And Daniel's told the words are sealed until the end time, or the last days of Israel. We are told in Daniel 12, 4, that at this end time will be a time when knowledge will increase. Now, how many of you heard this verse used for today and try to prove that this is happening, this is going to be in our future because knowledge will increase. And now we've got computers and we've got smartwatches and we've got smartphones and knowledge is increasing, so it's in the future still. I'm sure you've heard that, right? This is not talking about knowledge of technology, knowledge of science. This is talking about the end of the Jewish age. When the Bible talks about knowledge, it's referring to the knowledge of Yahweh. Prior to Pentecost, in the coming of the New Covenant, the knowledge of Yahweh was limited to one people. Who was that? Israel. Israel. Look at Romans 9.4. Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple, service, and the promise. It all belonged to Israel because Yahweh was their God. But God had promised, someday I'm going to recall the nations. I'm going to bring them back in. And at Pentecost, the knowledge of Yahweh began to go forth to the nations. This is the knowledge that Daniel's talking about. It was the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of God in Christ. Paul was used of Yahweh in the last days to increase this knowledge. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul lived in the last days and he helped his knowledge to increase. This is what Daniel's talking about. In the last days, knowledge the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach would increase. Verses 5 and 6 said, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on the bank of the river and the other on the bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? Now this question seems to be asked for Daniel's sake. And he answers it in the next verse. He says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river 
as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, as he swore to him who lives forever and ever, that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. As soon as they had finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. All the events. Again, the resurrection of verse 2. Daniel's told the resurrection will happen when the power of the holy people, those are the Jews, Israelites, they're the holy people, is going to be completely shattered. And that happened in AD 70 when their temple was destroyed. Without a temple, they're not a people. So the resurrection would happen at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age. We know that happened in AD 70. Verse 8 says, As for me, I heard, but I couldn't understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. That is, till the time comes or draws near that they're going to be accomplished. Until then, it's not going to be clearly understood. Then in the book of Revelation, we read this. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. The time had arrived, so now it's unsealed. What was sealed in Daniel is being revealed in Revelation. Daniel 10 says, Many will be purged, purified, refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. From the time of the abomination of desolation. How many years is that? 1,290 days. That's three and a half years, which is how long the war against Jerusalem happened to last. Yeshua referred to this in Matthew 24, 15 in discussing the fall of Jerusalem. Now, many commentators find an illustration here uh, of the standards of the Roman legions. When you talk about the abomination of desolation, the eagles were the object of worship to the Roman soldiers. We know from Josephus that the attempt of a Roman general, Vitilius, in the region of Tiberias to march his troops through Judea was resisted by the Jewish authorities. And they said, you can't, you can't march your Roman army through here because the idolatrous images on their ensign would profane the law. They said, you can't do that. So by combining Matthew and Luke's statements with secular history, we get clear the idea that Cestius Gallus and his Roman army were the abomination of desolation. It was fulfilled in AD 66 through 70 when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Chrysostom wrote this, For this it seems to me that the abomination of desolation means the army by which the holy city of Jerusalem was made desolate. 1213, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion in the end of the age. So the statements of verses 1, 7, 11, and 12 tie the resurrection to a time immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel was to arise at the end of the age when the power of the holy people was shattered. How can you take this resurrection and separate it from the destruction of Jerusalem? I don't know how you can do that. Daniel ties them too closely. Unless you just want to have it in the future, then you just have to ignore Scripture. So the resurrection was a spiritual Regathering of Yahweh's covenant people. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the Old Covenant in AD 70. It is not a biological resurrection of dead, decaying bodies. It was a release from Sheol of all who had been waiting through the centuries to be reunited to God in the heavenly kingdom. They were no longer separated from God, which is death. When the Israelites were out of the land, they considered themselves dead. 
Well, they are separated from God, but now they are brought into His presence, so now they are alive. They have been resurrected. Now, for you and I, for believers who have lived since A.D. 70, how about us? If the resurrection's in A.D. 70, when do we get in on this? How do we get in on this? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches that we receive a resurrection when we trust Christ. Ephesians 2.5 And when we were dead in our transgressions, that's all of us, every person born, born dead in sin, separated from God. He, said, he goes on to say, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead and He made us alive. We have eternal life and we can't die spiritually. So that's a resurrection. We've gone from death to life. Therefore, we don't need another resurrection. We don't need a bodily resurrection at death. They're going to take these bodies and put them in the ground. But we immediately go into the presence of the Lord in heaven. We are stars shining brightly. Look at John eleven twenty five 25 and 26. Yeshua said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Yeshua is saying, I'm the resurrection. We know that, that he's going to raise the dead. But he also says he's the life. Now look what he says here. He says, he who believes in me will live. And he's talking about spiritual life. Even though he dies. He's talking about physical death there. We're all going to die physically. And everyone who lives physically and believes in me will never die spiritually. Do you believe this? Life in Yeshua. He's the resurrection and life. So there's two categories of believers who are discussed here. Those who would die before the resurrection and those who would not. For those who died under the old covenant, He was the resurrection. But for those who died, who lived on into the days of the new covenant, He is the life. And we're seeing that in John. He is Light and He is life. Under the new covenant, there is no death. Spiritually speaking. Of course, we're all going to die physically, but there's no spiritual death. There's no separation from God. So we don't need a resurrection. We don't need to be brought into His presence. We live in His presence. We have eternal life. We can never die spiritually. Therefore, there's no need of a resurrection. At death, we go immediately into His presence. We're in heaven instantly and we're shining as the stars, all right? We are sons of God, sons eternally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, it's a confusing subject to so many people. I thank you that your word seems to make it so clear, Lord. Daniel sure does connect this time of rising, this resurrection to the shattering of the holy people, destruction of the holy city. Lord, I thank you for the truth you've given us, for the understanding that we're not looking forward to a tribulation. We're not looking forward to doom and gloom and bloodshed and murder. Thank you, Lord, the tribulation is past. I thank you that we live in your eternal kingdom. May we shine brightly in it, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Questions, comments on what we discussed this morning? So what is the part about American Christians in the Bible? Uh, that part's not in the Bible. Nothing about American Christians in the Bible. That, that's the thing people just don't get, you know. The Bible was not written to you. 
Okay? It wasn't written to you. People get crazy when you say that to them. The Bible's not written to you. Take the Bible and show me. This is my Bible, all right? Take the Bible and show me. Show me, show me in the Bible where it talks about you. You know, that book that says to the saints that are at Chesapeake, to the saints that are in Virginia Beach at Berean Bible Church. He talks about the Philippians, the Colossians. Where are you at in all that? It's not written to you. It's written 2,000 years ago. That's, you know, if you understand that, it, when you read it, you get a little different perspective on things. Audience relevance. Gary? Well, something said this morning about playing for the mountains just reminded me. We've discussed this before, but the, to believe future, um, you have to disregard common sense <laughs> and consistent logic. And if, if it were to happen today and we're all to flee to the mountains of Judea, the mountains of Judea can't hold us all. And, and it's everything that we're eternal. But if you apply, he said, consistent logic and common sense. Well, any logic. That's, a, that's the problem. We don't, we're not in a day of common sense. We're not in a day of logic. Okay, we're in a day of emotions. You hurt my feeling. You know, and we get all upset over everything. You know, we're not in a day of thinking people and they don't think anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, when the Bible tells you to flee to Jerusalem, to flee to, you know, the mountains, you know, if you just think about that for a minute, people, that's a long flight, okay? And where are these armies going to surround that, that we have to go there? So it's just, it's understanding who the Bible's written to and interpreting it in the light of that, which is audience relevance. If people did that, we'd have a whole different perspective on things. Yes. Uh, Revelation 14, 13, apply to us now. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then us. Yeah, well, that's it. From now on, we're blessed. Dying in the Lord. Uh, waiting. Right, we're not going to a waiting place. We're not going to Sheol. We're going straight to heaven. We don't have to wait for any period of time. And, but the cool thing, I think, is we're not going through the tribulation. You know, you watch some of these uh, Zionistic preachers on television, and they're raising money. They're raising money to get Jews to get back to Jerusalem. Why? So they can be slaughtered in the Great Tribulation. I'm like, that's not a good thing. You know, why are you want to help these Jews get back to Jerusalem so they get killed in the tribulation? Well, that's all over, people. It's all history. You know, and, and as my buddy John MacArthur said, what else can it mean? You know, I mean, you, you see what he does to that. What else can it mean? And, and to give you the rest of the story, MacArthur says that it can't mean what preterists say it means because in Revelation, you look at the language there and all that destruction that Revelation talks about hasn't happened. Because he, again, he lays that on the world, not on Jerusalem. So he says, see, that obviously hasn't happened, so the preterists can't be right. 